Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Listen in, hear me. I may not pass this way again. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with podcast producer Ella Watts. I'm on a mission to help you unlock your creativity. I'm sharing my journey as a musician, actor and writer, as well as offering online content like guitar and songwriting tutorials and chat about creativity. I'm doing this because I know how important creativity is for mental health and I believe everyone has a creative spirit. I want to help you find yours. Join me at robertlaymusic.co.uk and on social media as Robert Lane Music. Thank you. Hi, Ella. How are you? Hello. I am good, thank you. I made myself some bread this morning and then had a really great breakfast, which I find always improves my mood. That's fantastic. I'm good. I haven't made any bread. I'm a bit jealous about making bread. (laughs) One of the things that I kind of thought, well, in this lockdown era, I'll develop something I can do. I'm not a very good cook. I thought I'll make, I'll learn to make something hasn't happened yet. Maybe (laughs) I'm the only person who's after another lockdown just so I've got a chance to learn how to make something. But bread, is that a, a new thing that you've come to or have you made bread for ages? No, well, I, I mean, it is, I am a lockdown cliche in that I learned how to do it around sort of March, April. But a friend of mine taught me like the most simple recipe for making bread where you just get 390 grams of bread flour, one and a half cups of water, one teaspoon of yeast and some salt, stick it in a bowl, leave it overnight in the morning, let it rise for half an hour and then stick it in the oven for 35 minutes um, and loaf of bread. And since then, I've just been like every week, I just make myself a loaf of bread and it's really nice. That is cool. I've got to get better at breakfast. It's a meal I'm not I'm not particularly good at, but I am aware, as you say, that it does make you feel a lot better if you have decent breakfast. Yeah, my granddad used to say you have to dine like a king, lunch like a worker, and uh, oh, sorry, break, breakfast like a king, lunch like a worker, and dine like a pauper. Um, and so, like, I think that I that that kind of stuck in my brain because he used to say it a lot when I was a very small child, and so now I'm always like, I have a really good breakfast, and then the rest of the meals, I'm kind of like. Eh. I had a good breakfast, so it's probably fine. Um, good. And whereabouts are you actually talking from? Where are you based? Um, so I live um, on the outside of London near Watford um, in Hertfordshire. Um, so sort of London-ish. A- anyone who lives in London says I don't live in London. Anyone who doesn't live in London says I do. Mm. And are you from there originally? No. I. So I'm 26 years old and I have moved 32 times. Wow. I have lived in Hong Kong and Australia um, and across the UK. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I was born in Lincoln. I left there after the first six months of my life and I've never been back. Um, <laughs> I'm not really from anywhere. Just a bit of an international kid. That's cool. I'm always a bit jealous of people who have that kind of thing. So I had an actor friend who uh, was half Egyptian, half English so had done all international schools everywhere and the thing about that is she seems to have millions of best friends and you'll be like yeah. where you know okay that's your best friend when's the last time you spoke to me oh 15 years ago or the last time you saw them because they just have this stuff spread all over the world which it's very interesting particularly in a creative person I think having exposure to quite a few different cultures and different people can't be a bad thing I wouldn't have thought Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, so the phenomenon is referred to as like third culture kids, which is like anyone, 
where the child of the parents grows up for a significant amount of time outside of the country that their parents are from. Um, and obviously that's like increasingly common as we come into the 21st century and travel was kind of easier. I mean, you know, plague notwithstanding. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting is that um, psychologists have kind of looked at like the effect that that has on yeah development, relationships. And one of the things that happens is that third culture kids often will create really deep emotional bonds really fast because we know we're going to leave in six months. And so for people who've kind of lived in the same place for a couple of years, they take their time. They might not come out with like their biggest secrets and their most intimate feelings to someone they've known for like two months. And so when a third culture kid comes up to them, it's like, okay, so here's how I feel about my parents. Here are my deepest problems. Here are all my anxieties. Here are my hopes for the future. They feel like it's a really powerful emotional bonding thing. Whereas for a third culture kid, that's just like how you live life. And so you create, yeah, a lot of really intense kind of short-term relationships. And something that I find kind of interesting to work on is how I then deal with like longer term relationships and, and kind of and kind of turn that emotional intimacy into something more sustainable, not only in my personal relationships, but also in my professional relationships, um, which which can be an interesting balance to try and strike. Yes, I was going to ask you about that, actually, then. So in, in professional relationships, has that made, meant that it's quite easy for you to form a working relationship with someone and sort of make friends, for want of a better term, or or not? Yeah, so I think that it feels strange to say, but I, but I think it's fair to say that I'm pretty good at networking, I guess. Like, I'm... I'm very good at introducing myself to people and summarizing myself to people because I've so often been in that situation. You know, mm. I've so often been in a completely new community of people who have no common ground with me. And I've had to say to, you know, a bunch of Australians or a bunch of people living in Hong Kong or a bunch of people in Derbyshire, like, hi, this is me. This is what I do. This is what I like. Here's why you should like me um, very quickly. And because like growing up, there was that constant rehearsal. It means that like when I meet, you know, new people in a professional context I think that I'm reasonably good at kind of saying okay this is my deal um these are my values um this is you know this is how we'll get along um but these are the things I won't compromise on I think another element of that is that I recently found out that I have ADHD um and uh ADHD is on the autistic spectrum and I think like um I'm not very good at um sort of social cues or subtle deceptions I'm very candid because I genuinely just can't pick up on hints um and I think that sometimes in 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 media I think some people kind of find that refreshing and like if I don't agree with you I'll just tell you um if I don't like what you're saying I'll say it but I'm not saying it to be rude and I wouldn't ever go out of my way to make someone uncomfortable I just kind of just want to express my honest opinion and you know and I'm willing to change that opinion if you give me information and a reason to change it but like um anyway I think that that also kind of helps like that transparency in meeting new people because they don't have to kind of dig or wait to figure out like you know I guess what I stand for or what my values are because I'll just tell you um uh, and I think that that can be helpful all of that is really interesting and sort of comparing it to my own experience um this thing of I always think of it as quite an English thing. I don't know if that's fair to say, but this thing of you don't quite say what you mean or you kind of, oh, I can't say that. They'll be offended even though I mean it. I had an experience where I was playing guitar for um, uh, a, a Taiwanese lady who played music at weddings and she, she'd do stuff like she'd text me saying, are you available on such and such a date? And I'd say things like, oh, I don't think I can make that. And there'd be a pause and she'd say, 
can you do it or not? <laughs> and it's like, oh, no, what I mean is, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but it's that thing of you don't do that. Then you say, oh, I'm terribly sorry, but I think maybe I can't quite do that. And, of course, that wastes so much time, actually, especially in a professional context. If you think something's a shit idea, you should say, and as you've mentioned, if you can, if they can convince you otherwise, fantastic. But there's not much point sitting on the fence and kind of, if you know it's going to be a waste of time, I guess it's it's not going to help anybody. Yeah, and I think the flip side is true as well in that, like, um, I mentioned the ADHD thing and I, I get very, very, um, one of the things about ADHD, I promise I won't mention this in every question, um, but one of the things about it is that kind of like all of my emotions are dialed up to like 150% to 200%. I feel everything very strongly, very quickly, mm. um, which can be a really nice thing if I'm feeling something positive about someone or their work or what they're saying. Like I am very happy to immediately and enthusiastically and exuberantly express the fact that I completely agree and I think they're amazing. And again, I think there is that kind of like, it is an English thing. The English is so repressed, which is like um, that you kind of get a lot of British people who kind of hesitate to like outright express affection to someone or outright kind of express admiration and yes. then like kind of need to tiptoe around it. And I think again, in, in a creative industry, I've found that, that people seem to really value that in that I can just look at someone and say, wow, like the script is amazing. And I love this bit and I love this bit. And I think this is really cool. Or I really like how you did that take or like, I thought that this was really interesting um, because I don't really feel any, social hesitation in doing that um yeah great which as a as a performer it's great when people do that because the other the other side of what i was talking about for me has been there's a lot of occasions where i'm always thinking but what do they really mean because i'm expecting everyone to approach in and say i've been in situations recording music or whatever and someone said that was good that was, that was fine and you sort of think was it really <laughs> and and then even when people are really enthusiastic about things that can be that little voice in your head that's saying oh they're they're being a bit too enthusiastic there they're, they're you know who you're trying to kid and actually you sort of realize having said what i said about this whole Englishness, people do tend to say what they mean and really you should take people at face value of what they say and if they and by their actions as well. If people are working with you and continue to work with you, they can obviously see that something you're doing is worth being involved with. I think you find out pretty quickly. We've all been in those situations maybe where you're working on something that doesn't suit you or or you don't suit them. And it's it's much better to sort of extricate yourself from that, I think, at some level. And that's what people do. So I guess what I'm trying to say is people will say <laughs> at some level, however they put it, if they aren't enjoying what you're doing. So just take them at face value. There's a really big thing which I've been working on trying to learn more this year and just generally, um, especially on social media, but also at work, which is like the thing that will drive you insane is thinking you know what someone else is thinking. Mm. Like thinking that you know why they said that or why they've done this thing and then coming up with these big complicated reasons of, oh, well, they're probably doing that because of like X person and Y person and like they're probably blah, 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 blah. And like the thing is, I think... Um, actually like a guy on a on an actual play Dungeons and Dragons podcast said this but it was like there's no point worrying because worrying only makes it hurt twice and I'm a person with clinical anxiety I understand how difficult it can be not to worry but at the same time I think recognizing the fact that you just don't know what's going on in someone's life you don't know how complicated they are you have no idea what their relationships or priorities or dreams or ambitions are um, and so if you're in a studio with someone and you're kind of like giving a performance and you're kind of going, oh, well, like they probably said this because, oh, you know, they were thinking this and then they were doing that and then blah, 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 blah. All of that is just 
so unhelpful to you, to them, to your working relationship, to your work. Um, and it's just always kind of, I, I often do it again, like I said, on social media where like someone will tweet something and I'll work myself up into a state being like, oh, well, they clearly did this because of like this reason, and this mm. reason, and this reason. And then I'll kind of pause and be like, okay, I don't know anything about this person. I don't know what context they said it in. And it's always a lot easier and kinder to yourself just to assume the best and just to be like, like you say, take people at face value. Maybe they do have some Machiavellian supervillain motivation. <laughs> Even if they did, it's not going to help you haunting yourself with that idea. Like, you know, um, just kind of go forward with confidence and trust people. Mm, I've realized actually recently as well that it's quite an egotistical thing in the sense of thinking that everyone is thinking about you all the time. So, you know, if they don't respond to that email, then, oh, they hate me. They hate what I'm doing. But no, they're just doing something else. And, um, I spoke to Louise Kylie on this podcast a few months ago, um, a casting agent for normal people and stuff. And she sort of said this thing where like actors will say, oh, I, I wasn't sure about meeting you for this because five years ago I sent you this self-tape and I've realized the lighting wasn't very good and I thought maybe you'd think I was a bit of an amateur. She'd be like, I don't remember your self-tape from five years ago. You honestly don't need to worry. Like there's so much else going on. And I think that's really hard to say. It's, it's egotistical to sometimes to sweat the small stuff. You mentioned before this that you're like um, being a, a producer and the rest of it, that you, um, I presume, fairly perfectionist about sound and all this kind of stuff, which I am. And the amount of time I've spent worrying about a tiny millisecond of sound or whether a note's perfectly in tune on a vocal take or whether that guitar, str you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's good to be perfectionist with those things, but there's got to be some level where you say, well, it's a human being has done this. It's okay. <laughs> and no one is probably going to listen to this as closely as I am. It's lovely if they do. But all these little imperfections in the things that I love, I love all those little things that are a bit wrong. So it's, it might make sense. Is it egotistical to, to be that precise with things that you're going to worry about it to that level? I mean, like, I'd hesitate to say egotistical because I think it has kind of negative connotations and I I often um have this thing especially with writers I know where they're like oh you know like am I being too arrogant by like assuming that people want to know what I've written and it's like okay on the one hand yes on the other hand if no writer if every writer ever was so pure and humble in their ambitions that they never shared anything mm. um then we would have no literature at all um and ultimately we just have to accept that like you're the protagonist of your own life whatever your faith or creed might be there's a strong chance that like this is it this is your only existence so to some extent egotism is natural and healthy and important like obviously everything in moderation but you should be allowed to like care about like what you do and, and who you are and who you want to be um that said like yes i do agree that like perfectionism is the enemy of getting things done um absolutely and i think when it comes to things like audio production it's very easy to go into a bit of a whirlpool of just like endlessly adjusting like levels a little bit or just like you know fixing the audio a little bit or just adjusting the timing of just like one little sound effect or just um and you do at some point have to say okay it's just it's finished now and I also think that there's something in that about um sort of learning so I'm I'm fairly early career I said before I'm, I'm 26 um and I think like one of the big things that I've been learning over the last couple of years is that I just have to accept that 
I am fairly early career and the first thing I make is not going to be the best thing I make. And that's okay because the only way that I can ever actually do this properly and do this well is by continuously making things and being comfortable with making mistakes. And I don't want to say like failure because I think that creating that binary of success and failure is again, one of the real enemies of, of a thing that really stops people from going into the creative industries because they go, Oh, well, I submitted this script to this competition and it didn't get through. So therefore I should never write anything again. Or, you know, I uploaded this video to YouTube and it got two views. So I should never do another video. Um, and that's, that's just not how life works. That's not how reality works. Like we don't actually, despite kind of the Hollywood myth of creative success, constantly hit a binary of either you're a genius or you're an idiot, either you're a success or a failure. You are a human being who makes mistakes because you're human and that's okay and you learn from your mistakes and often like your mistakes are the things that make your work beautiful and also organic and real and natural and tangible like I I am a shameless terrible hipster I love vinyl records but the reason I love vinyl records is because like printed books like physical books they are artifacts of culture like they, their physicality and the imprints on them and the textures on them and the scratches and the notes and the dog-eared pages are what make them something that exists in reality with humanity and gives them a story that exists outside of me and i think that that's really beautiful so like let's say maybe you make your song absolutely perfect and there's not a single mistake in it well now there's nothing human about it now there's nothing living about it or real about it or emotional about it like the thing we love is the moment when the singer's voice cracks the thing we love is that moment of like a half of air at the end of the song the thing we love is that hesitation that thing that puts a shiver down your spine and makes you really feel for a moment as if you've connected with that person because ultimately in my opinion all art is communication and communication is human and humanity is imperfect love it Thank you. I love that answer. That was great. No, I'm totally down with that. And there's been a few things from my experience that have done that. When I was first in a recording studio, recording guitar parts, and I listened back to it, and I'm like, oh, you can hear me breathe. And I was really concerned about this sort of noise, no, nose noise at various points and fret noise and stuff. So, oh, God, that's really distracting. And then I listened to a recording of Bach's cello concerto, and I was like, you can hear the guy breathe, right? I'd never noticed it before <laughs> because you, I was listening in a different way. And it's exactly what you say. Same with when I started to do this podcast and I'd listen and be like, oh, there's a bit of mouth noise or that I can hear the birds outside or whatever. And then I listened to some of my favorite podcasts again with a slightly different ear and the sound shit on some of them like really bad. And I realized mm -hmm. actually, as long as it's listenable and the content is interesting, then that's, that's the thing. And the other thing that's kind of occurred to me over the last couple of years, I think, I used to think if you do a bad thing or embarrassing thing, you're done. Everyone will see that and that you don't get another go. And I think, unless it's a really terrible thing, I think that's not really true. And you do get another go. Again, you're not the centre of anybody else's world. So people for forgive you if they even know about it. As you say, you've got to make the mistakes. You've got to keep doing it. Yeah, for sure. Like, And I think this is true like across the range of kind of skills and challenges right it's not just creativity like whether you're a writer or producer or musician or whatever like you're going to make mistakes your first things are not going to be perfect in fact like they shouldn't be perfect because that means you're going nowhere which is honestly the most boring way to spend an existence like why would you just do the same thing over and over again um but also when it comes to things like social responsibility you know like um in my opinion one of the things you know 
white guilt is paralyzing. I'm white. I'm pretty posh. Um, and I think that um, I think that gets in the way of a lot of people in like creative industries, especially white people, um, like working more on accessibility is this fear that if you ever get anything wrong, if you're ever seen to ever get anything wrong, then you're evil and you must stop immediately and you're cancelled and that's it. And like the problem is that, again, because people aren't perfect, if we say that the only point at which we'll be inclusive is when we're perfect, we will never be inclusive because we cannot be perfect. And whereas bigots, you know, they're not trying to be perfect. Um, and so they're like, well, they, they, they've already won. Like, they're just like, oh, well, you want to be inclusive? Well, you made that mistake that one time. So you failed everything always. And it's like, it's not a binary. We are learning, we are growing, and we need to be able to acknowledge our mistakes with humility and modesty and just say, okay, I made a mistake. I'm sorry about that. I'll work on it next time. And, you know, you take a lesson from that and you keep going. Like the only way that you're actually going to make a difference to people and help people is by not giving up. If you give up as soon as you think that you've made a mistake that's embarrassed you, that's egotism. That's selfishness. Like, um, and I think that, yeah, it's just, it's a really important thing, I think, to carry with you wherever you go and whatever you do is just to be like, it's okay to make mistakes. Mistakes are the only way we learn. In fact, my headmaster at primary school used to say, uh, there's no such thing as mistakes, only a learning experience. Mm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Great. Thank you. I think perhaps we should talk a bit about the day job as well and also how how we you got to where you are. Um, so could you outline that for us a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I work part-time for BBC Studios, which is an audio and television production company. Um, it's a private company, uh, but parts of it used to be in-house at the BBC and funded by taxpayers. It's no longer, it's now funded by commercial profits. Um, the company is best known for TV shows like Doctor Who, Top Gear, Strictly Come Dancing, Silent Witness, Luther and Good Omens. Um, but it's also known in the audio respect as being the home of the BBC Light Entertainment Department, which then became Radio Comedy, and it's now BBC Studios Audio. Um, the Light Entertainment Department made things like The Goon Show and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and currently makes things like The Now Show and News Quiz and News Jack. Um, it's best known for kind of making satirical topical comedy, but it also makes things like sitcoms, comedy drama, sketch shows, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Most recently in podcast land, it's made uh, podcasts like Rose and Rosie uh, for uh, Spotify um, and also sorted with the Dyers, um, as well as Jacob Pauly on drugs and a lot more. So my job is that I'm a podcast producer um, and I work in a team of about a dozen radio comedy producers and I am the one exclusively podcast person. Um, and it's my responsibility to work across both podcast and radio programs, but also to seek out new commercial opportunities for BBC Studios as a company in the podcast space, um, which can occasionally be a little tricky because BBC Studios is a very big company, so it can't really interact with podcasting in the same way that smaller companies can. Um, in addition to that, so I do that job part time. And then I also am a kind of self styled, I suppose, audio fiction expert and consultant. In that capacity, I worked pretty extensively with BBC Sounds, um, consulting for their commissioning team, uh, and authored a report of the last like 10 years of the English language independent audio drama industry, uh, which was published by them on their website. I think that's the thing for which I'm best known. Um, I speak around the country and also occasionally in the US. 
on the independent audio drama landscape and uh, sometimes I lecture on it. Fantastic. Okay, there's so much in that that would be amazing to pick up on. So starting <laughs> off with the, the whole sort of genre of podcasting and podcast drama then. Tell us a bit about that world, as in it, it seems like a fairly, well, how do you classify these things, a fairly recent development that that is a, a genre in itself. I guess it isn't, but the fact that it's becoming a bit more mainstream. I mean, podcasts in general, I remember being at uni like 10 years ago and there was a module where they were trying to get us to make a podcast. And it's like, the fuck's this? And we kind of all just did it for the sake of it. And then something seems to have happened in the past half a decade where i think i was mentioned to you before that i love podcasts so much it tends to be more the factual conversational podcast that i really enjoy but across a range of things creative stuff business stuff history stuff and there's this thing and i wonder if it's the same with the drama where they're quite a niche subject maybe a smallish audience not an audience that would support a show on radio 4 or bbc 4 or whatever but dedicated enough that people can make a podcast put it out and know they're going to get some interaction and they're going to be people who enjoy it which is quite a unique thing i think in 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 our culture i don't think there's been that opportunity much before because the technology is allowing us to do it there is a question here somewhere <laughs> is it a similar thing with the drama side of podcasting it's a smallish niche audience or am i completely wrong about that uh i'd say yes and no so Drama podcasting, I mean, obviously, radio drama has been around since 1923, um, because I think that a thing that people often forget when talking about podcasting is that radio as a medium has existed for more than 100 years. It's existed longer than TV. Mm. So we know how to make good audio stories um, because we've been doing it for 100 years. Um, and I think that that's always worth kind of recognizing and bearing in mind. That said, podcast drama has been around for about 20 years. It started in the early 2000s and I kind of roughly just for the sake of like learning and simplifying, this is a simplification, uh, describe like four phases of podcast drama. So the first phase of podcast drama, much like the first phase of the podcast industry as a whole, was largely dominated by a, a more male audience, generally an older audience, a white audience, people who were interested in tech, who maybe worked in tech, who were experimenting with this new format. And so the podcast drama that existed was appealing to that audience. The most successful podcast at that time was We're Alive, which is a kind of zombie apocalypse survival podcast, very much in the style of like The Walking Dead. Um, it was made by a US Army veteran uh, called Casey Wayland um, and uh, was started, I think, in 2008 um, and then got really big. Then you get into the second phase of kind of drama podcasting. Now, this is uh, very much tied into serial uh, making podcasting just more accessible and just sort of putting podcasting on the map in terms of pop culture for the general public. Up until 2014, when serial gets big, you know, again, you kind of have niche people knowing about podcasts, tech people who are interested in it, but it's not really part of mainstream culture. And then serial turns up and suddenly it's in the conversation. So this is also the time in drama podcasting when Welcome to Night Vale gets big. Um, so Welcome to Night Vale started releasing in 2012, but it gets really big at the end of 2014, the beginning of 2015. Um, and this is largely due to fan culture, especially on Tumblr, um, to the point at which I actually listened to Night Vale from two months after their first episode all the way through um, to their first anniversary when they were like, oh, we're going to have a party at, the, at this pub in New York. Um, you know, we've, we've done it for a year. And I remember the next episode came out and they were like, it was crazy. Like, huh. 
200 people turned up and then a year later they sold out a main stage at San Diego Comic-Con and I just remember listening to the episode and hearing this insane crowd and just being like that is wild and that was really one of the things that got me really interested in working in podcasting. Also around 2014 you got what I refer to as like the serial lookalikes. Quite a lot of people I mean, I know that some writers were literally approached by companies saying, can you give me serial but fiction? Mm. Um, so that's what you get with like The Message. Um, you've also got Limetown and The Black Tapes. The Black Tapes was the first one that did that. And, and that's part of why it became such a huge success. It also is a well-written and well-made drama um, just by itself. But yeah, it really followed that serial style. So, you know, you have a lady reporter with an East Coast accent who's quite savvy, who's sharing her personal opinions on the story, etc. Like, you know, in a way that's like clearly very similar. Then you get to phase three of drama podcasting about 2016. So this is when uh, like actual commercial companies start taking interest in the space. This is when Gimlet makes their first uh, podcast drama, which is Homecoming, um, mm. starring David Schwimmer and Catherine Keener and Oscar Isaac. It's also when you get Welcome to Night Vale forming their own network, Night Vale Presents, and releasing their first two um, kind of new big shows, uh, which were Alice Isn't Dead and Within the Wires. And you also get in the world of kind of like independent drama, uh, a real flourishing of new voices and um, the audience begins to like change quite dramatically from that 2008 audience, which was largely kind of male and older and starts becoming more female, more queer, um, and has a lot more people of color. And so it's about this point that you get shows like The Bright Sessions by Lauren Shippen getting really big, Wolf 359 by Gabriella Bina, and Ars Paradoxica, um, which is from the Whisper Forge network. So then you go 2016 through to 2018, which was when I authored my report. Um, and in that time, like more and more kind of networks were becoming aware of Drama podcasting is a possible space, obviously, is a possible space for essentially piloting IP. I know that in 2016, already a lot of the big podcast drama people had been approached by TV execs to turn their shows into um, TV pilots. And the TV industry was aware of drama podcasts back in 2016 and was optioning IP back then. And so only some of it has been announced recently. Um, but you also get like national networks like ABC um, in Australia, like BBC, like CBC um, making stuff. You get the Maximum Fun Network making their first big podcast, Bubble. Um, you get Radiotopia um, taking on Passenger List starring Kelly Marie Tran, produced by John Dryden. Um, so you're seeing more and more of this like acceleration in 2018. And then between 2018 and 2020, which I would characterize as like the fourth phase of drama podcasting so far, um, again, like that, that has just grown exponentially. Last year, in terms of podcasting as an industry, we crossed 1 million new podcasts being uploaded every month. Um, and so obviously just the number of podcasts being made is accelerating at, at, at a crazy pace. Um, and obviously that includes drama podcasting. Drama podcasting is just a subset of that field. But you also get in the space now companies like Q-Code. So Q-Code was founded by an agent at CAA in Los Angeles. And he's kind of been using his contacts to create a lot of podcasts that are very transparently meant to be um, TV or film like prospects. And he's mm. basically just using the podcast as a pitch deck. Um, so you've got like um, Blackout with Rami Malek. You've got stuff like The Left Right Game with Tessa Thompson. More recently, um, You've got Baraska uh, with uh, Cole Sprouse um, and uh, ooh, Dirty Diana with Demi Moore. 
stuff like this. Um, weirdly, also a uh, a kids sort of cowboy dog one, the name of which escapes me, but starring Matthew McConaughey. Um, and what you see there, I think, is is kind of like a very uh, hmm, organic relationship with the talent. So, for example, Cynthia Erivo um, starred in uh, Carrier, and then her she's decided to invest her own money in her own production company to make that into a film because clearly like it's it's a it's an idea that appealed to her personally and I would be surprised if the conversation wasn't something along the lines of hey what kind of thing do you wish you could do but you don't normally get to do great we can do that in a podcast we'll just write that for you so Q code is kind of like a big deal in that respect you've also got obviously Spotify acquired Gimlet Mm. um and then Spotify are kind of like tentatively investing in drama occasionally. I don't know what's going to happen with them. Um, the I think it's called The Last Degree of Kevin Bacon, um, which came out the beginning of this year, kind of got a bit lost because of the plague. Um, but we'll see like how they go on. I think Spotify did recently, well, a couple months ago, sign a first look deal with a big film production company. So they're clearly interested in developing fictional commercial IP. Um, and again, that's something you're seeing across the board, right? Um, lots and lots of people from film and TV are kind of now, four years after kind of the early um, picker-uppers, seeing that it's an interesting industry where you can kind of acquire IP and also pilot it cheaply, well, relatively cheaply in comparison. I'm sorry to interrupt the conversation at this point, but I wondered if I could ask you if you might possibly consider subscribing to the podcast, rating it and writing a review on your favourite podcast provider. Doing these wonderful things encourages the all-powerful algorithms to push the podcast to new people. It's also helpful when I'm talking to potential future guests, as it shows that people are listening. Thank you. In 2018, you had Storyglass, founded by Fremantle, which is a drama podcast production company. Um, recently re- released a horror show called The Harrowing by, with starring Joanne Froggart. I suspect that they want that to be a TV show. Um, you've got companies like Hattrick founding an entire podcast department, having a head of podcasting. Uh-huh. There are agents who are responsible for scouting podcast IP at all four of the big agencies in LA. So like CAA, ACA, um, William Morris Endeavor and whichever one the third is I never remember all of them um and so yeah so now now it's becoming kind of a a much more commercial industry um it's also worth saying that you've got companies like Marvel and Disney investing in podcasting obviously Marvel has two seasons of the Wolverine podcast starring Richard Armitage again that comes in in 2018 with this big kind of maturation of the industry um but they've also got Marvel's Marvels um they might be working on more I don't know um and you're seeing more um, podcast being bought as TV shows. I think that the stage we're at now is an interesting one because, first of all, this is very much, uh, I think, a bit of a industry bubble. Um, everyone thinks our great podcasts are perfect because podcasts are a way to kind of ensure talent and see that they, you know, to 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 make sure that they're safe to work with, even if they've not got TV or film experience, because they've got a proven audience. Mm. Um, and it's also a cheap way to pilot IP that would be very expensive to pilot normally, especially genre fiction, right? Um, so you can you can test sci-fi without having to spend X million dollars on like a special effects budget. So I think a lot of people are like, oh, great, this is the answer to our prayers. But we have yet to see a successful podcast to television adaptation. Like Homecoming came out, no one cared. It was Julia Roberts' first TV show, no one cared. Limetown came out, no one cared 
Um, Archive 81 has recently been optioned and I'm really excited for that because I think Archive 81 is a fantastic podcast. I don't know if it'll work as a TV show. And so kind of the big thing now is like, who is going to be the person that cracks that podcast TV problem? Who's going to make a good TV show out of a podcast in an interesting way? If someone does it, then I think that fiction podcasts become an even more exciting place to be. But if they don't, then I think that like that interest will wane um, quite quickly as people realize that there's not an easy or simple way to kind of make money out of this because podcasts aren't a ma magic money tree. Um, and then the other side of that is also obviously as commercial companies like BBC Studios honestly come into the space, um, the space is becoming kind of homogenized. Um, the gatekeeping from other industries is being imported into this mm. one um, with like commissioners, with like who's willing to spend money on what for which talent. And the indie scene is kind of getting forgotten. So, you know, because of the plague, this year, a lot of theatre companies turn to drama and uh, audio drama. And that's great. Like, it's genuinely wonderful because obviously acting is a skill. Directing is a skill. And God bless them. But a lot of audio dramas don't realise that um, because they're people who, for whatever reason, haven't been able to pursue theatre professionally or drama professionally. And so they think, oh, well, you know, if I just read a script in my bedroom, that's the same as having an acting degree. Right. And it's like, well, I want you to do your thing. But I also want you to accept that acting is a skill that you should value. Um, and so on the one hand, theatre companies making audio drama great. It's really improving the quality of content in the industry. Um, and it's really kind of like inspiring people and showing people different ways of like interpreting theatre. There's a series going at the moment called Seeds starring Nina Sasanya. And it's like in terms of theatrical execution, it's excellent. Mm. Um, that said, what tends to plague uh, drama podcasting as well as the podcasting industry more widely is that every month a major publication publishes an article going wow check out this theater company that invented audio drama <laughs> and it's like okay so first of all it's been around for a century but second podcast drama has been around for 20 years and to kind of answer the last bit of your question and i realize i've gone on for a while i apologize um to answer the last bit of your question um podcast drama has been around for 20 years but it's not a niche. In fact, podcast drama has surprisingly huge numbers. So you've got podcasts like the Magnus Archives pulling in more than a million downloads a month. Um, you've got podcasts like the Bright Sessions with more than 30 million downloads. You've got podcasts like We're Alive with more than 250 million downloads. Welcome to Night Vale has more all-time downloads than Serial. Um, like, and so I think that a thing that people often forget is that whilst there is this niche, like the niche of kind of nerdy people who like audio drama is Comic-Con. That niche is the people who like Marvel films. That's not a small audience. That's actually a very big, very dedicated audience. That is the kind of audience that, in the case of Welcome to Night Vale, sells out London Palladium and has them performing an audio drama at Sydney Opera House. Like, And that isn't actually happening for a lot of other kinds of podcasts. So I think that it, it does have like drama podcasting is a little bit the little industry that could and in my opinion because it is this kind of like area and forum for new voices for different voices to tell their stories and again as i said since 2016 to tell stories to an audience that is quite diverse that is female that is queer that has people of color and disabled people in it um i think it has like a vital place for stimulating like radical imaginative thought in the global north um and it's really exciting 
Great. Thank you. I learned quite a lot from that. That was brilliant. One of the things I was wondering from what you said about whether we're going to make this transition from podcast to TV shows is the first thing is, is that an audience that wants that? Is that going to be one of the problems? Do they want these things to be television shows? I mean, I guess, yeah, because if you love something to see it, you know, realised on television might be great. But then on the other hand, if you love audio drama, perhaps you want things to stay as an audio drama. Is that going to be one of the problems? And the other thing, as you mentioned, a lot of drama podcasts, I presume, are doing things, well, you did say this, are doing things that would be disgusting budget-wise in terms of actually realising them. Is it just going to be hard to make these things happen as television programmes? Yeah, so I think that there's two things. I think, honestly, the reason that we haven't had a successful podcast drama to TV adaptation is that no one's thinking about what makes it a good TV show. Mm -hmm. They're just going, oh, great, we'll just imitate what the podcast did. And the problem is that what the podcast did was it told an audio story really well. And telling an audio story really well is a very different skill to telling a visual story really well. So a great example of this is in Homecoming. In Homecoming, repeatedly, Julia Roberts fiddles with a voice recorder because in the podcast, it's a found footage series where we listen to a therapist's voice notes okay but on a tv show you don't want to see someone fiddling with a voice recorder because if you haven't listened to the podcast you're like why is she fiddling with a voice recorder and also they don't do anything creative with it in my opinion the simplest way to make that interesting is to just cut the sound on the tv show now if you cut the sound of the tv show and then you have a fiddle with a voice recorder and when she clicks it suddenly you get sound that's creatively engaging but if you just have her fiddling with an object it's like uh, i mean okay i guess do i have to see this every episode like what is the point um, so I think, yeah, first of all, there's this big thing about, like, how do you make a good podcast or TV adaptation? And a consideration in that is obviously budget. It's like, are we going to do bad CGI for this? Or mm. are we going to find a different way to tell this story? Um, so I, I think that's the first thing. In terms of whether the audience wants it, I think that on the one hand, I think that the audience is kind of, I mean, it's interesting. It's very easy in podcast land. We kind of subscribe to this myth that podcasting is this wildly accessible place that has this really diverse audience that's like incredibly like groundbreaking and exciting. But the reality is that academic studies have repeatedly shown that more than half of podcast listeners are men. The vast majority are white. The vast majority are middle class or upper class. Like it's actually not a massively diverse audience. It's the kind of champagne socialists of the world. It's the Guardian subscribers and Twitter users. And that's fine, but we have to recognize that reality. So I think a lot of the audience genuinely don't care. Like if 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 a TV show comes out, they're like, fine. If it doesn't, they don't really care. I think that there is a small but vocal minority, however, especially in the drama podcast landscape, of kind of especially young um a lot of like lgbt plus like queer people um who feel very strongly about that kind of like indie diy self-made side mm -hmm. of it and i think often they're misled um and, well i think, think it's unkind to say misled often they might not completely realize what's going on like for example a lot of these people really love the mcelroys and the mcelroys are amazing they are not DIY your neighbor next door kind of self-made men. They were very, very rich before they started making podcasts, which is why they were able to become successful. Um, and so, you know, you do have that element. 
um, where kind of the audience believes in the myth. And it's, it's kind of the same as YouTube culture, right? It's like the influencer thing. It's the sincerity and realness and whatever, um, which is that, you know, a lot of successful YouTubers are people who were already wealthy, who already had a lot of successful media or like good media contacts, which allowed for their series to be discovered. Um, but their brand is, oh, I'm just like you and I made it because that's that's what you do, right? Like the easiest way to make someone buy you know, your um, indulgence is to say, hey, I did it. And I mean, my soul's clean now. So you should do it too. You too can be a millionaire if you buy a lottery ticket. Um, but the truth is that most people don't get, win a million pounds when they buy a lottery ticket, right? And the same of like, kind of digital fame. Um, that said, <laughs> there is this kind of like, queer minority of people who do most vocally and enthusiastically support shows which have queer characters like I think that a really interesting contrast between something like Homecoming and something like The Bright Sessions is so The Bright Sessions has been listened to by more than 30 million people Lauren Shippen has been commissioned for a three book trilogy spin-off of the series she's done two spin-off series which have been paid for by Luminary and off the back of that she ended up writing for Marvel's Marvels and a passenger list starring Mary Kelly Marie Tran and she is working on more stuff to come the Bright Sessions also stars a cast of almost all some flavor of queer characters who all have like various kinds of mental illnesses from anxiety to depression. Because Lauren Shippen is a bisexual woman with clinical anxiety. People love that show, but specifically queer young people love that show. And they'll go on social media and they'll make like, you know, Instagram stories about it and TikToks about it and they'll make Tumblr posts about it and they'll do fan art and they'll cosplay and they'll like they want the books, they want the spin-offs something like homecoming i often say and i will say again that like homecoming is a failure you have the first big commercial audio drama from a big commercial podcast company starring david schwimmer and oscar isaac and Catherine keener that get, then gets adapted into the first in this century television like podcast to television adaptation with julia roberts for the first ever time starring in a tv show and within a month, no one knew about it. No one cared. It had absolutely no impact on the cultural landscape. Because what Homecoming was, was about a straight woman therapist who falls in love with this guy who's an Iraq war veteran and then does some unethical shit. And it's like, okay, I've seen that movie. I've seen that TV show. I've seen that book in the airport. Like, there's nothing new or interesting about this to me. There's nothing that this offers me that other industries haven't already covered. So I think in podcasting often, especially in podcast drama, the only way to really make something work is to uh, find like kind of a reason that it's going to offer something that other industries don't offer. And part of that is, you know, making the most of your medium, obviously. But it's also representing these diverse characters that you can do in podcasting that might be harder to do in other industries because of the gatekeeping and inaccessibility therein. Um, and so kind of to come back to do they want TV shows? I think that, you know, these kids want to see the people they care about succeed. They want to see Lauren Shippen doing well. Mm. They want to see Gabriella Bina and Sarah Shackett and Paul Bay doing well. And if that means they get TV shows, then that's great. They're excited about it because they care about the creator. What they don't want to see and what they're not particularly in interested in, what's been demonstrated is heavily commercialized, homogenized and sanitized in inverted commas, uh, pilots like everything made by Q code 
turning into a TV show. Because again, they're just basically making TV shows, but they're not on TV, so they're not as good. And they're not doing anything particularly interesting with either the medium or with their representation. So it's like, I mean, okay, I heard a podcast like this, but it was better. So I guess mm. I'm not going to listen. No one makes fan art for Q Code. No one cosplays Q Code shows because they're not trying to like make good podcasts and they're not trying to make it interesting. Um, and I know that this means that I will literally never be able to work with anyone at Q Code, <laughs> but I do feel it's my responsibility to call it out. It might mean the opposite. It, it might mean that they go, oh, yeah, that she's right. Come and help us do it. I mean, that's the way that some <laughs> things happen, isn't it? I mean, it sounds as if what you're saying is, if stuff is not being made with love, people don't love it. You know, it's simplest form. Like the the things that are successful and get an audience, it's because somebody is putting something of themselves into it and talking to other people who might be in a similar situation. And that's the same with all art, isn't it? And it's it's so fascinating to think how things could progress. But then as you've mentioned, that scary thought of the gatekeepers now getting themselves involved. It's like when the really cool area of a city where all the arty people live and then it's it's cool and fashionable, so all the money moves in and then it's just like everywhere else. Is it kind of that thing? Is that where we're going with it? Yeah, very much so. So like you have places like BBC Radio 1 and Spotify and they're only interested in commissioning new shows from people that have like circa 1 million social media followers. So essentially what they're doing is they're importing an aristocracy from other forms of media, right? Um, and they're no longer interested in good ideas or interesting new voices or platforming new talent. They only want people who are already very famous in another industry. Mm -hmm. And that's a crying shame because, you know, podcasting is this amazing like industry for this incredibly diverse group of voices. Um, but I also think it's like even if you want to kind of be uh, Machiavellian about it, um, it's just really missing a trick. Like, the thing is that people actually don't care that much about Angelina Jolie's podcast. Like, if Angelina Jolie makes a podcast, there are some people who will be like, okay, I guess I'll listen. But they, there actually aren't that many people, even though she's a very recognisable name, there aren't that many people who feel like they care enough that they want to support her. They don't feel like, oh, I really need to make sure that Angelina Jolie's podcast is successful so that she can eat next month, right? Like, no one thinks that she needs their support. So no one cares about doing reviews. No one cares about doing fan art. No one cares about writing in love letters. Because, like, whatever, fine. It's the same celebrity I've seen somewhere else, but it's better when I see her in a film. So yeah. whatever. Um, and so I think that, like, that's a thing that is, like, a real kind of... Um, myth in podcasting is if you bring in someone famous from another industry you'll automatically be successful i think what's been demonstrated again and again and again especially in podcast drama is that that's not true that doesn't work a name recognizability is not as high as face recognizability it's a lot easier to be like oh yeah i know that person from that tv show than to be like oh yeah do you know like x person um but b uh Without that like engagement, without that like care and community building, you don't get those incredible numbers. Um, and so I think that like when you get commissioners and what they want to do is kind of build a relationship with you know younger audiences. Everyone wants to build a relationship with younger audience because there are more young people on the planet right now than there are of any other age group. So if you want the majority of your audience, you've got to appeal to the kids. 
Um, but the only way to appeal to the kids is to engage them. And the kids really don't care if Brad Pitt makes a podcast. They just don't because they are a more ethically conscious generation than has ever existed. They are more digitally literate generation than has ever existed. They will like go into like the tweet history of like ex celebrity and decide whether or not they agree with that person. They will like look up who this person is and what they do and how much they care about sustainability or racism or like just generally sort of things that they care about. And so if you're a company that's like, oh well, I mean probably if we just put this famous person on a podcast then that'll be it, then you're not really using the industry to the or the medium to its best effect and you're not mobilizing an audience and without mobilizing that audience you're never going to play Sydney Opera House you're never going to have these amazing deals because no one cares and like the thing is that if you're working in creative medium step one is you've got to make people care um so yeah I I I feel quite strongly (laughs) that I I think that this is the wrong direction for it to be going in. And then at the same time, I have absolutely no doubt that it will go that way because it is the laziest, easiest and most cowardly way to go. And in my experience, when you get rich people involved, that's what happens. Good point. So, Ella, to round up, then um, sorry, <laughs> that's but it, it's true. To round up, your uh, what's your ambition for your contributions to this genre for the next little bit of time? So, what I really want to do, and we will see if I'm able to do it, is make diverse drama, but on a large scale. Like what I love about indie podcasting is this diverse range of voices, of writers, of actors, of characters, um, and the audience who cares so much about it. So, you know, if I get to, on behalf of BBC Studios, make an audio drama that stars a trans character that was written by a trans person, and then like one trans kid hears that and it really matters to them because it's the BBC, then like, great, I've won. That's what I wanted to do here. Um, I think from the start, my decision to go into being staff for a company rather than continuing to be indie was to see if I could bring some of those values and some of that exciting innovation and that talent into the commercial industry and kind of like open the door a bit and get people in. So if I'm able to do that at least once, it's a success. Um, And we will see if I can. Great. Ella, if people want to catch up with you and see the projects that you're working on, would Twitter be the best way to do that, would you say? Or we've got a website or... Yeah, so I've got a website which is bit.ly forward slash Ella Watts, um, case sensitive, so capital E, capital W. Um, and yeah, Twitter is normally the best place to find me at GEJ Watts. Um, I also now have an Instagram. Please follow me there. I, in the year of our Lord 2020, I finally gave in. I'm an audio person, um, but <laughs> I now have an Instagram and I do need more people to follow me. So check out my Instagram, which is also at GEJ Watts. Ella, thanks so much for taking the time to chat to me. That's been fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Join us next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast. Until then, please subscribe, rate and review and have a look at robertlanemusic.co.uk to see the other projects I'm working on. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.